jokes out there. All right. Remember, only the government can cut a foot off a blanket at the top, sew it on at the bottom, and call it a longer blanket, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, we are blessed this morning to have Dr. Larry Moyer here to speak to us. Uh, Dr. Moyer is the founder and CEO of Avantel Incorporated, a uh, nationwide ministry that provides evangelism training and uh, opportunities for people to hear the gospel, uh, just as uh, about 200 folks did last night. Uh, Larry has for 40 years uh, trained uh, men and women to share the gospel and been sharing it himself. Uh, and uh, he is a gifted speaker, a, a, a great man of God. Uh, he has become a, a friend and a mentor and a big encouragement to me. And uh, we are blessed to have him. And so I would like you to uh, give him your warmest welcome and your attention here for the next few minutes. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's an honor and delight to be here tonight with all of you. As I said last night, although I'm now living in Dallas, Texas, I was born and raised on a dairy farm in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. And so I love the farm country. I always enjoy being in Illinois. It's such a delight to be here with you. I sincerely appreciate the off the uh, to the point and kind introduction that Joe gave me. When you travel as a speaker, you get every introduction under the sun, but they're not always good news. <laughs> Some time ago, I was speaking up in Michigan for a week-long conference, and the pastor got up on opening night. What he actually wanted to say to people was, Larry came here on Saturday, He'll be here all week. We're looking forward to that. Then he'll be leaving us next Saturday. But he was a pastor who had a reputation for getting tongue-tied in the pulpit. And sure enough, he introduced me. What he said the packed house was, Larry came here on Saturday. He'll be here all week. He's leaving us next Saturday, and we're looking forward to that. <laughs> so I sincerely <laughs> appreciate his awfully kind introduction. Back in 09, somebody said to me, why are you not speaking at Wild Game Feast? You came to Christ through hunting. You're an avid hunter. You've had great success. You'd be a natural. I said, because I have no burden for Christian hunters. Because all the ones I knew of, they did for the men in their church. And they said, well, why don't you devise an outreach for the unbeliever? And God would not let me go about it. It's now become one of my most effective outreaches. Our biggest problem, as you saw last night, was a big enough facility to accommodate the crowds. And I cannot tell you how God used them in a great way, but there is no cookie-cutter wild game feast. So every wild game feast, I'm on the phone once a month, four months out, with the person who's in charge, guiding them through the preparation. And I tell people, a good leader knows how to lead and also be led. And I would all really commend Joe, your pastor, because he knew how to lead, but he also knew how to be led as I got him through the preparation. And you guys did a terrific job, and I think you ought to really be applauded for the great job that you did. It's great to see how the Lord worked. <laughs> I tell people, when you do them right and keep your focus where it needs to be, they keep growing. I am booking Wild Game Feast that they're now running two nights, 500 coming every single night. And just exciting how the Lord's using them. But I tell people, and I don't mind telling you, there's no one who steps on the platform anywhere in the USA any more grateful to God than I do. Because a lot of you don't know my life story. 
by born with an inherited speech defect inherited from my dad's side of the family that was so severe I could not pronounce T-H-E, duh. And therefore, medical doctors told me to give up all hope of ever being a public speaker. One day, seeing high school, my head between my hands so no one could see I was crying because I had just been ridiculed what seemed like the 550th time. I told God, if you will help me with this inherited defect, I will always use my voice for you. Starting that week, I started having control I had never had in my entire life. And that's the year speech therapy brought me to where I am today. But when you come from that kind of background where you're born with an inherited defect you cannot do anything about, and God works in such a great way to give you deliverance, you don't take one speaking opportunity for granted. It doesn't matter if it's an audience of 50 or an audience of 50,000. It's such a delight to have this time with you. But this morning, I want to ask and answer a question. I have found when people think in terms of spiritual things, it's one of the first questions that often come to their mind. I'd like to ask and answer the question, what kind of person do you have to be in order for God to accept you? What kind of person do you have to be in order for God to accept you? And if you have your Bible, may I ask you to take it and turn it into one of the most exciting paragraphs in the entire Bible. It's found in the second part of the Bible, a part called the New Testament, the third book, that book called Luke. Chapter 19, I like to start reading at the first verse. Luke chapter 19, I like to start reading at verse 1. But if you're here this morning and don't have a Bible with you, may I encourage you to look on someone sitting near you. Or if you have two Bibles, like a husband and a wife, may I encourage you to glance around you. If you see someone without a Bible, be so kind, take one of yours and share with them. I want to lead today knowing where God said first, what well, I'm only going to repeat. So when you have a Bible in front of you, turn to Luke chapter 19, I like to start reading at the first verse. Luke chapter 19, and beginning at verse 1. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of sure stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up in Psalm and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste, came down, received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all murmured, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said, Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. A very exclusive firm in New York City one time put an ad in the paper for a very exceptional employee. The ad simply said, Won it. Very exceptional employee. Must be good looking, must have credit references, must have a graduate degree, and must have written 10 books, five of them in a foreign language. Well, it so happened that an elderly man living way back in the hills of Kentucky saw the ad. Tattered shirt and torn jeans, he made his way to New York City. When he got to the building where the firm was located, he took the elevator all the way to the ninth floor 
and walked in their office. There was a very young, attractive, and stylish dressed secretary sitting behind the desk. And he turning said, are you all the guys looking for an employee? And she, with embarrassment on her face, said, yes, sir, we are. He said, are you all the guys? Say, he must be good looking. She said, yes, sir, we are. He said, are you all the guys? Say, he must have credit references. She said, yes, sir, we are. He said, are you all the guys? Say, he must have a graduate degree. She said, yes, sir, we are. He said, are you all the guys? Say, he must have written 10 books, five of them in a foreign language. She said, yes, sir, we are. And then with sarcasm on her face and in her voice, she looked at him and she said, but if you don't mind my asking, what in the world are you doing here? And he leaned over her mahogany desk, looked her eyeball to eyeball and said to her, well, I just came the whole way up here to tell you, ma'am, don't count on me. <laughs> no, I have to confess, the first time I read that, I laughed just as you have. But the more I thought about it, it seemed to me, Behind that humorous story, there's an awfully honest point. And that is, there are those who are very much aware when it comes to certain offers, they just plain don't qualify for them. Some time ago, I had something very humorous happen to me while I was speaking just south of where I'm now living in Dallas, Texas. One noon, I was scheduled to have lunch with a man who owns a small airplane company that both sells planes and gives flying lessons. But since when I got there, he was tied up with the customer so that I would just not have to stand there. He looked at one of his employees and he said, why don't you take Larry out and show him the planes? Now, you must remember, this was a small airplane company that both sold planes and gave flying lessons. Therefore, since the man did not know me, he assumed I was either a pilot interested in buying a plane or a man interested in flying lessons. At the same time, I had no idea what was going through his mind, and for that reason, everything went bananas. Because the first question he asked me was, do you fly a lot? I said, yes, I do, only usually I fly commercially. Now, what I meant by that was that when I want to go to Peoria, I take American Airlines. <laughs> he assumed what I meant was I was a commercial airline pilot. His second question was, well, what kind of plane do you usually fly? And I said, well, I've flown all kinds, but quite frankly, the bigger they are, the better I like them. <laughs> now, you can imagine how I misunderstood that, but the situation reached its greatest hilarity. When he walked out to one of the planes, he unlocked the door and he said, here, why don't you take this one up for a while, and if you don't mind, I'll go along just for the ride. <laughs> Well, I promise you, I could have given him a ride. Because <laughs> had I flown that plane, the two of us would have been the closest we've ever been to seeing the maker face to face. Because no one knows better than I do. When it comes to the offer of flying a plane, I just plain don't qualify for it. And there are those who are very much aware when it comes to an offers, they just plain don't qualify for it. And there are those who are convinced the same thing is true with the Lord. All you have to do is read the Bible to find out God is offering every person the free gift of eternal life. He's offering everyone the opportunity to live forever. But there are those who are convinced they just don't qualify for what he wants to give them. Some time ago, I spoke in Longmont, Colorado. One night, I expressed a desire to talk to anyone who did not know they were going to heaven, and a businessman indicated a desire to talk to me. The next day, we got together. He, first of all, admitted he did not know he was going to heaven, but then he said, I'd like to. 
But he then said, there's one thing standing in my way. I said, what's that? He said, I have broken every law in the book. I am too big a sinner for God to save. He is by no means the first person I've ever had say that to me. There are those who are convinced that because of everything from the rector to the reputation, even if they were interested in him, there is no way ever be interested in them. After all they've heard, God help those who help themselves. So if you don't have some decent self-respect about you, you might as well forget it. Then there are those who have heard, God help those who help others. So if you have not been a good and giving kind of person, don't put in your application. So all that raises the awfully important question, what kind of person do you have to be in order for God to accept you? What kind of person does God save? Well, quite frankly, don't ask a preacher because there's no need to ask a preacher what God himself tells you. And God himself answers that question in verse 10. Because if you notice it says, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In other words, the kind of person God saves is a person who is lost. Now, that term law confuses some of us, just like other terms in the Bible confuse others. For example, one time there was a Sunday school class that was studying that paragraph in the early part of the Bible that said, God took a rip from Adam and made Eve his helper. And a young boy in the class could not figure out for the life of him what it meant, that God took a rip from a man and he made a woman. But he was running home after Sunday school just thinking about this exciting truth he had just learned when all of a sudden he felt a sharp pain in his side. And so he said to himself, oh, he said to himself, oh my word, I think I'm going to have a wife. <laughs> and that term law confused us, just like other terms confuse others. But if you want to know what I mean by lost, then the man you got to understand is a man by the name of Zacchaeus, because he's the one the Bible calls lost. And therefore, if you understand Zacchaeus, you then know what the Bible means by lost. Now, frankly, that paragraph only tells you two things about Zacchaeus. It doesn't tell you 200, only tells you two. And the first thing it tells you about him, some of you are not going to be able to identify with, because you have never been in his sandals. Because the first thing it tells you about him is, he was a short man. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus entered in path to Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. Now on that day, when a man and his disciples came through town, people would respond the same way they do today when the President of the United States come through. They'd all line up on the sidewalk so everyone would get a chance to see him. But Zacchaeus had a problem that everybody had, and he was only knee-high to a kadiddy hopper. And therefore, he was in a crowd. He was so short, he could not see between them and could not see over them. But you must remember one thing. Zacchaeus' life was dedicated to the principle where there is a will, there is a way. One time, I talked to a man in Pennsylvania who told me what happened on the first day he ever had with a person who is now his wife. He had had a fight with his dad that week, so he was fortunate just to get the car. He could not ask him for any money, and he did not have a dime for the date. So he walked up to his sister. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. 
You and I own a dog together. And I'll sell you my half of our dog for $10. And the sister said, no, thank you. I don't care to buy it. And so the brother turned and said, then in that case, I'm going to go out and shoot my half because I don't want him anymore. <laughs> and the sister almost had a cardiac arrest. She became so upset he might shoot their dog, she gave him the $10. <laughs> Where there is a will, there is a way. <laughs> And the kid's life was dedicated to the principle. There is a real, where there's a will, there's a way. And therefore, although he was short, he was not about to let that stand in the way of seeing Christ. So look in your Bible, verse 4. So he ran ahead and climbed up in the sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. Now, another name for the sycamore tree was a fig mulberry tree. Fruit like a fig, leaf like a mulberry. It produced a poor fruit only poor people ate. But since its branches were very spread out, very low to the ground, walking up into it was as simple as walking up a stepladder. Therefore, you can be certain Zacchaeus was not barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> there is no better tree he could have climbed. And there in that position, he had a balcony seat from which he could see the Lord. And the first thing to tell you about him is he was a short man. But no, obviously, that's not what the Bible means by lost. Because it is no sin to be short. Some might feel it's a disadvantage at times, but most certainly no sin. But notice, the second thing it tells you about him. Now, only does it tell you he was a short man. The second thing it tells you is he was a sinner. Now, if you'll notice, there are three things to tell you that. The first thing it tells you that is his job tells you. Look at verse 2. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector. Now obviously, since I don't know most of us here, it could be some of us are in some kind of government-related job. And you feel like stopping me right now and saying, Larry, don't you dare stand up there and say it's a sin to collect taxes. Then there's others of you that are not a government-related job. You're tempted to say, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> But regardless of how you feel, it was a sin to taxes the way Zacchaeus did it. Because in our day, at least there is an established way of doing so. Earn so much, you pay so much. In fact, our system is so organized, if you don't pay what you should, you know what you should have paid. Some time ago, a man cheated on his income tax, and it bothered him forever after that. So one day he sat down, he wrote a letter to the IRS, and he said, I cheated on my income tax last year. It bothered me ever since, and closed buying a check. And then he wrote, P.S., if it continues to bother me, I'll send you the rest later. <laughs> In our day, the system is so organized, if you don't pay what you should, you know what you should have paid. But this day, the system was not that organized. It was so arbitrary. Because tax would stand by city gates. And people came by with their boxes and their bundles. They'd open them up. On the basis of the contest, they would charge a tax. If they wanted to be kind to their in-laws, hard on their outlaws, they could. If they wanted to treat the Jews one way, the Romans who hired them another, they could. In fact, if you can believe this, the Roman government even allowed them to overtax the people and keep the remainder for themselves. And if you're smart, the first thing you do is pay up, 
The second thing you do is hush up. Because if you didn't, when you'd come by the second time, you'd be charged twice what you were the first time. And apparently Zacchaeus was hard everybody he knew. He tried to get as many pennies as he could for as many people as he knew. So much so, the end of verse 2 says, and he was rich. And frankly, there is no better city to be a tax collector in than the city of Jericho. That's like if someone says to you, go sell snowmobiles, and then they position you in Alaska. It was the place to be a tax collector because people would come from the east and the west. It was known as the number one hotspot to be a tax collector in. And the first thing to tell you as a sinner is that a job tells you. But notice, there's a second thing to tell you as a sinner. Not only does the job tell you, the people tell you. Look at verse 5. Then when Jesus came to the place, looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste come down, for they I must stay at your house. So he made haste, came down, received him joyfully. But when they saw him, they all murmured, saying, he has gone to be a guest for the man who is a sinner. Now, frankly, you know just as well as I do, it's never popular to be a tax collector. I sincerely doubt that anyone who's worked in an IRS office could win any kind of popularity contest. But tax collectors were particularly unpopular in this day because they were hated by the Jews. So much so, it was considered a disgrace to have a tax collector who was part of your family tree. One time I read of a family doing some work on their family tree, and they discovered the years earlier one of their relatives had just gone to the electric chair for murder. And they realized if they put that in the family tree, it would disgrace everybody. So when they came to his name, they wrote alongside of it, Uncle Charles occupied a chair in one of our leading institutions. His death came as a true shock. <laughs> Why, well, assure you, if you have Patrick in your family, the one thing you do is try to cover it up. And the thing that was so despised about them was the way they used the occupation of robbing the cheat. So much so, Christ one time said to one of them, take only what belongs to you and no more. And for that reason, these people were furious. They were not upset. They were M-A-D, mad. And you'd have had no trouble determining how they felt. Look at verse 7. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, that word complain means to murmur and groan out loud. Years ago, I was in a speaking engagement, and it was during the presidential primaries. And that night, before hitting the bed, I caught the evening news. Well, again, it was during the presidential primaries, and a candidate was about to get up and give an address. But just as he stepped on the platform, somebody said something, and the whole place erupted. You could not distinguish one word being said. All you heard was grumbling and complaining. Well, quite frankly, had you been a TV reporter on the streets during this day, you would have told us anything being said. All you heard was grumbling and complaining. But quite frankly, there's one thing those people did not understand, that if I can be so frank, a lot of us don't either. And that is, God does not love you based on what you've done God loves you in spite of what you've done. Time magazine told about the 37-year-old owner of a pizza place in Allentown, Pennsylvania, that bailed his wife out of jail with 
$50,000 shocked the entire state. The reason was the wife had tried on two occasions to kill him. The first thing she did was have her daughter's boyfriend come into his bedroom, take the pistol underneath his pillow, fire it into his head. When that did not kill him, she then stuffed barbiturates into his mouth. They were actually things that ended up saving his life because they retarded the bleeding. Two days after that, when he still was not dead, she paid two men $500 each if they would come on in and finish the job. One of them fired a bullet, then earned one inch from his heart. Two days after that, when he still was not dead, the police were tipped off about the situation, broke in the man's house, found him very much unconscious, but very much alive. They rushed him to the hospital where they spared his life. When he had come blessed, he then said, he was stand by his wife the entire trial, and he bailed her out of jail with $50,000. When a policeman was asked, how could he do such a thing? He answered, the only thing he'll tell us is that he loves her. I have no idea what all the man was saying, but I know there's one thing he was saying. I don't love her based on what she's done. I love her in spite of what she's done. If there's one thing God's saying to every single person here today, it's I don't love you based on what you've done. I love you in spite of what you've done. But notice there's a third thing tells you as a sinner. Not only does the job tell you, not only do people tell you, he tells you. Look what happens after he comes to know the Lord. Verse 8 says, Then Zacchaeus soon said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Asking the question, is Zacchaeus a sinner? It's like asking the question, is the White House in Washington, D.C.? Now, who does not know that? And who did not know Zacchaeus was a sinner, including Zacchaeus himself? In the Old Testament, if you stole one item, he had returned four times what you took. In other words, you stole one sheep, he had returned four of them. And that's why he says, if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll return four times that amount. There's no bigger or better way he could have said, I'm a sinner. And that's why verse 9 must have been the best news he had heard in a long time. Notice it says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. There are times when you are expecting good news, and you get bad news. For example, one time a husband walked into the department store, and he bought some expensive perfume for his wife. As the clerk was wrapping up, he said, I take it you're going to surprise her. He said, am I ever? She's expecting a new car. <laughs> there are times you're expecting good news, you have bad news. Then other times, you're expecting bad news, you get good news. After kind of life, the kids lived, had every right to expect bad news. Good, bad news. Instead, he got good news. Look again at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation come to this house, because you also is son of Abraham. God's blessings were given to Abraham in the Old Testament. He said, I'll make him a great nation. Anyone who received those blessings was called a son of Abraham. And the way he became a son of Abraham was to place your trust in Christ as your only way to heaven. That day, Zacchaeus placed his trust in Christ and became a son of Abraham. So that when the Bible wants to explain what it means by lost, 
it points to a man who's a sinner. And what the Bible is saying is, if you want to come to God, you have to come as a sinner. If you want to come to God, talk about how often you've been to church. You cannot get to heaven. God does not save people go to church. God saves sinners. If you want to come to God and talk about what a good life you've lived, you cannot get to heaven. God does not save people live good lives. God saves sinners. If you want to come to God and talk about the time you were baptized, you cannot get to heaven. God does not save people when baptized. God saves sinners. If you want to come to God and talk about the commandments you kept, the sacraments you've taken, you cannot get to heaven. God does not save people keep the commandments and take the sacraments. God saves sinners. That is one reason in that book. Those who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks often find it easier to come to Christ than those who grew up on the right side. The fact of the matter is, you are never too bad for God to save, but you just might be too good. The comment's been made, God saved the lost, the least, and the last. If you want to come to God, you have to come admitting you're part of the lost, part of the least, part of the last. Please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. I abhor the thought of murder, and I detest the idea somebody, somebody breaks into your house and takes what's yours, not theirs. But there are times I've had occasion to say to people, I wish you were a murderer. I wish you were a thief. Because you find it easier to come to Christ if you were. That means in order to be saved, there's only two things you can do. The first is, admit you are a sinner. One time I was talking to a 76-year-old woman in Kansas about the good news that Christ died for her. Then I said, now in order to be saved, you have to admit you're a sinner. You admit that. She said, I'm not half as bad as a lot of people I know. We talked some more and then I said, now, in order for you to be saved, you have to admit you're a sinner. You admit that. She said, you ought to know what so-so down the street's done. We talked some more, and then I said, now, in order to be saved, you have to admit you're a sinner. You admit that. She said, I've done a lot of things right in my time. We talked some more, and then I said, now, in order to be saved, you have to admit you're a sinner. You admit that. She said, the Lord knows I'm trying to do what's right. We talked some more, and then I said, now, in order to be saved, you have to admit you're a sinner. You admit that. All of a sudden, tears started flowing down her cheeks. And she said, yes, I'm a sinner. And the first thing you have to do is admit you're a sinner. And the second thing you have to do is place your trust in Christ alone, nothing else, as your only way to heaven because he paid for all your sins by dying for you. He died in your place. He was your substitute. They punished him where they should have hung you, where they should have hung me. And the third day, he rose again. He saved us by dying for us. Years ago in Brooklyn, there was a young mother who left her baby unattended in her apartment. Right after she left that apartment, a fire explosive in nature broke out. Only one fireman would risk his life, go in the building, and save the baby. But when he got in, he could not get out. And so as the flame licked at his feet, he walked over to the baby, picked it up, curled it close to his chest, walked over to a window, and dropped the baby to the fireman below. Then he fell back in those flames 
and died one horrible and agonizing death. 20 years later, the woman who had been that baby was seen kneeling at that man's grave. When she was asked, whose grave is this? She answered, this man died for me. What the Bible is saying is, Christ died for you. On a cross 2,000 years ago, he took your sin and my sin, placed upon himself, he died in our place. He was our substitute. And the third day he rose again. And therefore, you simply have to come to God as a sinner, recognize Christ died for rose, and put your trust in Christ alone. Not Christ plus your good life. Not Christ plus your baptism. Not Christ plus your church attendance. But in Christ alone, as your only way to heaven. And the second you do, God gives you eternal life as a free gift because God saves sinners. What kind of person you have to be in order for God to accept you? God answers that with one man, ten sentences, six words. God saves those who are lost. God saves sinners. So if you want to come to God, there are not five conditions. Four, three, even two, there's only one. Have to come as a sinner. And if you can come as a sinner, there is no question God can save you. Years ago, there was a well-known preacher by the name of George Whitfield. Although he often spoke to his brother about the things of Christ, the brother was never that interested. But one day, the brother was a bit more despondent than usual, probably for that reason, a bit more open than usual. And a woman who took care of his house, who understood that paragraph, was once again talking to him about the good news, Christ died for you. All of a sudden, George Whitfield's brother said, it's no use, it's no use, I'm lost, I'm lost. And the woman said, well, praise God for that. He said, what do you mean? She said, if you can say, I'm lost, you're the person Christ came to save. If you are sitting here today and you can say, I'm lost, I'm a sinner, I deserve to go to hell, may I extend to you my heartfelt congratulations. You're the one Christ came to save. And if you'd let him, he'd even do it this morning. Let's bow our heads and even our hearts, so to speak, in prayer. Would you pray with me? This morning, as our heads about our eyes are closed, I would like to ask every person here, most important question a friend could ever ask, I hope I call myself your friend. If you're to die right now, not tonight, this morning, do you know, beyond any doubt, you'd go straight to heaven? I'm sure there are those here who would say, Larry, I've never understood this before. Nobody's explained it quite the way you did right now. Do you know what's exciting? I mean exciting. You could trust Christ right there, right now, right there where you are. Jesus Christ could become your personal Savior. In a moment, I'm going to say a prayer, kind of prayer you can use. If right now you want to tell God you're trusting Christ. Now, saying this prayer does not save, it's trusting Christ that saves. Prayer is only how you tell God what you're doing. But if right now you want to trust Christ, this is how you can tell God that. Just in the quietness of your seat, the privacy of your heart. 
Dear God, I come to you now, and I admit you that I'm a sinner. Go ahead, tell God that. I admit I'm a sinner. Nothing I am or do makes me deserving of heaven. Tell God that. Nothing I am or do makes me deserving of heaven. But now understand, Jesus Christ died for me. Tell God that. He took my place and punishment and rose again the third day. Tell God that. And right now, God, sitting in this seat this morning, I place my trust in Christ alone. as my only way to heaven. Thank you for the free gift of eternal life. I just this moment received. Now as heads about eyes are closed, may I say two things. For it's if you sat there in that seat and you sincerely trusted Christ, the Bible, not Larry, the Bible says, God just gave you free the gift of eternal life. Everything you do from this morning out is a thank you there to God for what he just did today. May I encourage you, live the rest of your life as a thank you there to God. Let him week by week and month by month take out of your life what should not be there and what should be there. And secondly, don't be ashamed or embarrassed to tell people. I trusted Christ this morning. When Christ died on the cross, he was not ashamed of you. Don't be ashamed to tell anybody. I trusted Christ this morning as my only way to heaven. Live the rest of your life as a thank you to God. And don't be ashamed to tell anybody. I trusted Christ today. He was not ashamed of you, I beg you. Don't be ashamed of him. Our gracious Father, Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. That when you devise the way to heaven, you were so loving not to consult us because we would have made it so complicated. But you loving in a way we never understood, L-O-V-E, made so simple, however what's to can come. Lord, we pray for those who trust you this morning as their only way to heaven, they might not be ashamed to admit it and could the rest of their life be a thank you letter to you. And Lord, for those of us who have known you for some time, could you remind us in a fresh way that the only thing we can take with us to heaven is a friend? Instead of living the remainder of 2017 for all the stuff that 100 years from now won't even matter, help us live it for the people who do. For we ask in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. May I ask all of you to do something right now. It would be a tremendous help to those who made this special Sunday possible. When you come in, you should receive the card looks like this. It's called a communication card. What's so helpful when it's something like this is know how many were here, where they were from, what age they represent. Would you be so kind to take a moment right now, I'm going to wait for you to do so, and fill out that card. Now, one per couple, but one per person. If you did not get one of these, just hold up your hand. Somebody will come and get one of those to you. If you need a pen or pencil, someone on the side will loan you theirs. But just take a moment if you would and fill out that card. 
And please don't miss Wednesday next. It is so important. If you trust the Christ today, salvation is a starting point. It's not the stopping point. God wants you to grow as a Christian. It's exciting to come to Christ. It's ten times more exciting to grow as a Christian. So if you trust the Christ today, would you put a check mark in the upper right-hand corner so that we can see you get a copy of a book I wrote just for you, 31 Days of Living as a New Believer. 31 Things I Wish You Had Told Me That Night in the Dairy Farm I Trusted Christ How to Take It Off Like a Rocket. So if you trust the Christ today, say, Larry, I don't think I've ever understood this before. I trust Christ today, and I meant it. Put a check mark in the upper right-hand corner so we can see you get some help information how to grow as a Christian, get a copy of the book, 31 Days of Living as a New Believer. Now, you notice it says on there, are you able to own a firearm? The reason for that question is that your pastor is one of the most kind and giving people I've ever met. And if you don't own a firearm and would like one, he'd like to buy one for you as a free gift to you. But no, <laughs> the reason that's there is because last night one of the top prizes was a gun, so we had to know if you could own a firearm. You can ignore that question. <laughs> but take a moment right now, fill it out, not one per cut, one per person. May I say it again? If you trust the Christ today, God wants you to grow now as a Christian. We want to help you. We want to see you get a copy of the book, 31 Days Living as a New Believer, help you grow as a Christian. See, if you trust the Christ today, you say, Larry, I don't think I've ever understood this before. I trust the Christ today. Put a check mark in the upper right-hand corner so we can see you get a copy of the book, 31 Days Living as a New Believer. Once you've done that, just pass them to the two aisles upside down, and in just a moment, I'll have the men come back collect those. One more thing. If you have ever in your life want to lead one person to Christ before you die. May I beg you, give me one hour of your time today, right after lunch that the church is serving. I'm going to bring a mini seminar called What's So Scary About Evangelism? How Do You Overcome Those Fears? I'm going to address the four fears every one of us have, myself included. Talk to anyone about Christ. Each one is going to get a printed handout to take notes and take home with you. You will leave convinced that you can lead out of one person to Christ before you die. Many thousands have led their first person to Christ as a result of this seminar. So if you have ever in your life want to lead one person to Christ before you die, please don't leave, stay for lunch, then a one-hour seminar called What's So Scared About Evangelism? How Do You Overcome Their Fears? Looking forward to that time together. But thank you for turning those communication cards upside down and passing them to the aisle. And now if a couple of you men would simply come forward and collect those, but thank you for helping us to help you in that way. Thanks, Larry. I appreciate uh, you opening God's word to us and telling us that anyone, anyone can come to faith in Christ. Uh, no matter what you've done, uh, Christ has done everything for you that you might come into relationship with God through faith in Christ. Uh, if you have not, uh, if you didn't tell me you were coming to that, uh, that seminar, uh, you didn't get signed up for that, but you would like to come, I encourage you to do so. Uh, see me before, uh, you know, right after the service, come see me, and we will make sure we have enough food and all that uh, for everybody who wants to be here. Uh, it is that important if you want an opportunity to lead somebody to Christ before you die. If you've never done that, 
It is the most exciting thing you can do as a Christian is to uh, share the gospel with someone and have them trust in Christ uh, by the Holy Spirit using you to introduce them to Jesus. So if you, if you are interested in that seminar, you'd like to come, feel free to stay. Uh, but let me know that you are staying so that by 1230 we can make sure when we get started at 1230 that we'll... Uh, We'll have all the food that we need that you can eat and we can eat and we'll celebrate together. We'll, there's a lot of pie left over for some odd reason and uh, we'll have that but we'll also have some fried chicken and, uh, and some other things. It'll be a good time and there is child care available if, uh, if that's a need too. So uh, I'm going to pray for us and then our worship team is going to come and close us in a song. God our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the grace of God is so sufficient that it is so extensive that no one, no matter what they have done, can sink so low that they can fall below the grace of God, that his mercy extends to the lowest and the least and the last, that he loves us with an everlasting love and sent his son to die on the cross for us and to be raised from the dead to give us new life. Father, we are... Uh, as we gather here today, people who are celebrating the reality that God in Christ reached down and pulled us out of our mess uh, simply by trusting in Christ, and that his death was sufficient for our sin, and that his resurrection is, uh, is the means by which we have eternal life. We are raised to life in his new life. And Father, we thank you for the marvelous privilege we have of hearing the gospel and being called by your Holy Spirit to believe the gospel and to receive eternal life. And Father, we pray uh, for everyone who is here that if they've never trusted in Christ before, that today would be the day of salvation, that they might uh, experience the freedom that comes to those who trust in Christ. And Father, we ask your blessing on the rest of the day. We pray that uh, we might glorify you with our lives and live, as Larry said, a thank you letter to Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.